OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Well, welcome everybody. We just go right into it. So we're already live. We're already recording. So, um, and uh, I, I'm going to, I guess, to, to start it off, um, Permjad, I'd like you to kind of give, and hopefully I'm saying your name right and I'm not missaying it, but um, I'd love for you to kind of give us a background about yourself. So a little bit about your, uh, maybe what you've been doing for the last 20, 30 years, some good things like that. And then uh, we'll jump into the questions. Sure. So um, um, for the last 20 years or so, so I'm from London originally and um, been doing various things, but then the, I really got involved in angel investing as a consultant, um, I was working at a large, one of the large four accountancy firms as a, as a sales guy, and then uh, got involved, got the entrepreneurial bug there, invested in a company. The company did very well, and then I just started doing more and more angel investing. And in 2007, in the midst of the financial crisis, we launched a fund, a recovery fund called Flight and Partners. That is still going, and it's been running now. We've got about 20 million Canadian under management. Very, very small fund, but it's very active. We, we actually buy the whole company. We don't buy equity. We buy the whole company, turn that around. And uh, for the last um, 20 years, I've been really working on my passion, which is um, uh, economic development, uh, working with uh, in rural areas across the world, and really just uh, identifying and helping lots and lots of startups. Um, so that's that brings me to where we are today. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, we've had some good discussion around your background and all these great things you do. And and uh, I can say that uh, of all the people I've interviewed, I really loved a lot of your background and the stuff that you're doing. So uh, we've aligned quite well there. So David's good for putting us in contact. Um, Thank you, David. So, uh, so you kind of touched a little bit on on um, the when you put an investment into a startup. Maybe you can give us a little bit of an idea on what got you started. Like, what was that driving force that really put you into the driver's seat on investing and got you more excited to keep it going? So what got me started with, with investing was uh, initially I was working as a consultant to this business, which manufactured lasers for skin treatments. And having first-hand knowledge of how well they were doing, what the order book looked like, the value proposition, the uh, customer feedback, I thought the company was going to do very well. And then I found out that the company was raising money and I didn't know anything about angel investing. I didn't know what it was called or anything. I just said, Oh, is there a chance for me to put money in this? And then I did and I enjoyed it. And then there were other opportunities that came about. I mean, most angel, uh, most angel investors, it's a close knit community. People tend to know each other. They kind of tell people about deals, et cetera, et cetera. So I just got involved that way. And then I got involved in more and more angel groups. I didn't really enjoy being involved in angel groups, but um, I got involved in a few. But then I really, for the last, I'd say 10, 15 years, I've been doing my own investments. Uh, I have invested in angel funds. Uh, so I'm an investor in a large fund here in Atlantic Canada, a fund in Arkansas, and a fund actually in Eastern Europe. But uh, angel funds, so I've enjoyed that. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's what got me started in angel investing. 
No, that's uh, that's pretty good. And you you kind of jumped into a lot of things. Like you didn't just go into investment. You've tried kind of a mix of the whole thing. So it's given you a good flavor of angel investment, funds, going direct. So you've got a really good learning there, which is super helpful for any startup to have you participate and help them because you can carry a lot of knowledge on where to go to get other investors to join in. But at the same time, you get a good view of, of the landscape of what's going on pre and post COVID and, and obviously all of the other things that have occurred. So that's really great. So when you, when you made that first investment, what was the excitement about it? You said that you were really excited and you really liked it. What was that piece that you really enjoyed about it? Actually, it was just being a part owner of a business. So one of the last investments I've made, the investment that brought us, uh, connected us was in a company called Cribcut, which is run by a CEO called David Howe based in uh, Atlantic Canada. And what was really nice about this was, it, A, it came through a recommendation of somebody, a very, very successful business guy, Kyle Racky, uh, who runs a phenomenal business called Proposify. It was in the media actually yesterday because they raised a truckload of money, a very, very successful business. So he recommended uh, uh, David Howe from Cribcut, which is a great thing. And then what really impressed me was David was a seasoned entrepreneur. He, he really knew what he was doing. And often I think what the ability to pitch is overrated and i say that as somebody who makes a living training people on how to pitch but i think the ability to pitch is overrated now david was not only a really good pitcher but what i saw in him and what i look for in other people i invest in is that command over the operational detail that can you actually operate the business because most people can with a lot of training and maybe i'm in an unfair position to know about this because i've trained people and I've, I've trained some people to do great pitches but they're still not good businesses. Uh, whereas what you really want to do is look for people who can really understand the, uh, the landscape of, in, uh, of running a business and have domain expertise. And that was something that was very impressed in this particular entrepreneur. Uh, so that, that gives you an idea of actually just using him as an example because he's, he's the common thread we have. That was uh, what I looked for. And now increasingly, I look for people with operational experience and people who actually can run and make business decisions rather than just pitch. No, that's uh, that's great advice and, and a great way to look at it. Um, and I agree, David's uh, very detail oriented. He gets things done. I, I think a big thing about um, early stage companies or early any company is how well can they organize and get things completed? How can they move that needle every day? And if that's a little objective here to the next to the next and being able to close it off. And uh, I found that a, a lot of um, entrepreneurs sometimes become too much marketing and not about function. And they're, they think that that's the only way they're gonna be accomplishing something. But when you gotta wear five, six, seven hats, you've got a lot of things to juggle and you can't be dropping balls because you can't complain that you don't have enough money or enough resources. It's how well can you pick the ball up, move it forward, go to the next one, move it forward. Absolutely to keep everything moving. So I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think that's a, that's a great point, very valid to uh, how startups can really focus better on accomplishing their goals. So you've kind of got this uh, good little mix going. What's the favorite part? What do, you, what do you just love the most? What's your favorite part about investing? Like you were talking about operations, you got all these little cool things that work in, but what's the real thing that you wake up in the morning and like, I love this? I, I, I enjoy the getting it right i mean sadly we get it wrong just the numbers we get it wrong more often than we get it right um but i love the it's to me it's an intellectual exercise i mean the, you you don't 
you don't ask investors to invest in your company with the attitude that they want to become rich. If, if my primary motivation was to become rich through angel investing, I would probably do something different. Um, it's a different thing. It's an intellectual thing that can you see the pieces, the person, can you figure out what you think is going to be successful? Can you understand what the growth hypothesis is, what the value hypothesis is? And, um, and most of my investee companies will tell you I'm an extraordinarily passive investor. I don't like getting involved. I think I, I, I just hate it when uh, investors say, you know, the number one thing for me, the number one thing is team. It's all about the team. And then they want to get involved in the team or they want to get, tell the team what decisions to make. Now, if I wanted to run your business, I'd be running your business. I wouldn't be investing in you. I'd be buying your business. I don't want to buy your business. I want to invest in it. And I want you to run the business. And I think sometimes you need to have that conversation as well. Now, I do have some skills and stuff, and, and, and sometimes companies use them, sometimes companies don't. But I don't actually want to get involved in companies to deploy my skills. If there are areas I can help, great. But, you know, I, I, that, that is not what I want to do. So the most exciting thing for me uh, as, as an investor is just the intellectual challenge and seeing if you can actually help with difficult problems and help them see a way through using your experiences and insights. And I, I really like it to be a kind of a one-way communication. Most people say you should have two-way communication. I like it to be one-way. I like the entrepreneur to ring me up rather than me ring the entrepreneur up and say, hey, what's, what's up? How can I help? I want the entrepreneur to say, hey, I've got this issue. What, how would you tackle this? How would you tackle this? I, I like that. I will only contact entrepreneurs if I feel I, I'm really not getting a sense of where they're at, et cetera, et cetera. The worst thing I can do is never call an entrepreneur because that means I've just written them off, even after, <laughs> even after I've invested in them. Because I can't control the amount of – I can't control the amount of money I've invested. All I can control is the amount of time I invest in them in the future. So sometimes you just have to cut your losses and, and money comes and goes. I, I, I don't worry about the money. I worry about my time. So if I decide, yeah, that's gone, I will just not spend any of my time on it. No, and that's, uh, you got to value, you got to put some value to what you're putting into it as well, right? So there's a, there is a value exchange and it's interesting, but the companies that are doing really well, they'll update you and they'll, you know, you'll see their growth, you'll see things happening. The ones that are struggling, they may not come and talk to you. They may not ask the right questions. And those are the ones that probably could really use your help. And uh, you're, you're, I really like the idea of where you're saying that I'm not investing in the team. I'm investing in you to build the team, build the business. And I'm going to be over here to help you on, you know, if it's big picture stuff or things that you've got problems with, love to help. But really, I'm investing in you to do those things. And I got to find the right people that are going to take this business and move it forward. And that speaks volumes to uh, an investment portfolio because when you grow that portfolio, people say to me, they'll be like, how do you have so many companies? Well, I'm not babysitting 30 companies. They're, they're basically updating it, right? So you got to be able to feed them when you can. And I think you're a sales engine. I'm just going to feed you contacts, help you grow, figure out this, meet that. But really, that's our job. And then taking information and giving our updates. But absolutely, any broader than that. I mean, one of, one of the things I'll do is I, I read, I, I love reading and I, I read uh, certain ma magazines and publications regularly. And what I will sometimes do is just, if I see an article that I think is relevant, I'll send them articles and stuff. I'll, I'll, I'll do that to my portfolio. Other than that, in terms of active uh, engagement, it's, it's very passive for me, very passive. It's, it's one of the things I do. I'm not an angel investor. 
I, I my my identity isn't. If somebody said, "What do you do?" I'm never going to say I'm an angel investor. That that describes. It, it's like if you go running once, you know, three times a week, you don't describe yourself as a runner. It's one of the things you like doing. Um, so I wouldn't say I'm an angel investor. It's just one of the things I do. So my identity is not that. My identity is all the other things. So I like to do lots and lots of things. Um, angel investing is just one of the things. I'll probably do four or five investments personally a year and then through the funds do another three or four. Nope, that's valuable. And uh, that's good to know as well. So I guess on that side of things, on the amount of companies that you invest in, is there... Do you also bake in there somewhere a percentage of reinvestments? Uh, no. By that, uh, so you asked me if I bake in something for reinvestment. And do you, by that, do you mean that I'll put 25000 into a company and then leave 25000 allocated to support the company reinvestment? It could be another twenty-five. It could be 10% of that. It could be uh, I'll put another ten grand in in six months when they do another investment. Or do you kind of just make your investments? I'm good. I'm on to the next ones. I don't like to reinvest in a company twice. Um, I just let it go. Is that kind of the idea? I'll reinvest. I mean, personally, I'll reinvest in companies if I feel the story has changed. Again, I, th I think I'm really moved by the concept of sunk time and sunk cost. And I think with lots of things, you have to uh, you have to look at things as they are today. I actually had a deal that I had to do this morning on a, on a business I'm involved in. And the deal was very, very, very different from the deal I'd enjoyed over the last 10 years. Very different deal. And the deal looked bad. And then I think if you look at historically how you've been rewarded, that's a really bad, bad, bad way. What you have to say is saying, forget the past. If I was offered this deal today, would I take this deal or not? And it was a great deal. It was a phenomenal deal. So I took the deal. Um, but then you have to let go of the legacy of past expectations. Past expectations should not inform what you expect for the future. It's, 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 and, and, and yet loads of people make that fallacy. Loads of people will reinvest in a company despite knowing that the company has probably not going to, you know, achieve the promised returns, but they just can't let go because not investing means you've definitely lost your investment. Whereas I, I kind of think every time I, I look at a reinvestment opportunity as, and there are lots of companies that I have reinvested in continuously, but it's because I approach it saying, what does the deal look like today? Would I invest at that valuation, et cetera, et cetera. And there's sometimes when you turn around and don't reinvest because you think actually the company's great and the amount of money I'd invest is, I, I just wouldn't invest in the company at that valuation range. So if, if a company gets to 10 million plus, that's not where I typically invest. So it's not a statement that I don't believe in the company. I'm not supporting the company. I am. But it's just not if I would I rather invest in a five million cap company now or would I invest in a 10 million company now? I'd always go for the five million. And that's great. We fit on the same lines. Like if we're going to reinvest, we reinvest only up until the 10 million mark. Anything over that, it's not worth it to us because we're trying to help seed. And we're hoping, and maybe it's not hope's not the right word, but we're working with a company per se to say that when they get to that round and they're going to raise, we're, we know there's a lot of other collective groups, VCs, that are gonna come in and support it because we've helped it get that far. So we can help that handoff. And that's what we wanna do. It's, it's a very clean way of doing it. Um, and that might be one or two investments before that. And yeah. sometimes it helps with others to come in because they see that you came in at their early stage, maybe at the 2 million. And if you do come in at 5 million, it actually shows that you're just as supportive of it. And if it comes up another yeah. one, yes. you can step away from it.
The only, Jeffrey, the only thing I would say where we, we may be aligned or we may not be, I don't want, if I'm on a, if I'm on the board of a company, and I very rarely sit on boards. I, I've done over 50 investments and I sit on about three boards or I have totally sat on about three boards of companies I've invested in. What I don't like though, is when board members are part of a fundraise and don't personally put money in. I think when you are on the board, you have to invest. You have yes. to, unless it's a big institutional raise. So there are two exceptions to that where um, there's a big institutional raise and the institutions don't want to be watered down. Um, and it wasn't the case of that, but if you're doing an angel round or if you're doing a pre, uh, you know, still doing individual investing and you are on the board, you kind of have to invest. Agreed. It, and it, that shows very well. It shows that you support it and you're not in there just taking and you have to give. Yeah. And if you're in a leadership position, cause I'd expect the same thing of, of uh, all leadership positions that you can't ask others to do what you're not prepared to do yourself. I can't stand behind the CEO and go to others and say, you should invest in this company. You should really invest in the company. Well, how much are you investing? Oh, not me. You know, so you, you, you can't do that. Yep. And, and you know what? That shifts a little bit when you're, uh, when you're bringing people in to support your company. I think you have to start looking at those aspects as a founder, but because the investors are also looking at that, they're looking to see who is on the board, who is supporting this, and are they yes. going to make that investment? because it yeah. does speak very strongly to uh, the company. And if they're getting people that aren't, then maybe they're not the right, they're not the right people because you want all hands on deck when you're growing this company, especially at that early stage. And you mentioned that you're on a, a couple of boards and, and that was um, a, a really interesting component to it because um, you're probably going to handpick the ones that you really feel that you can make a benefit for and you really can get behind to be on that board. Is there a time frame that you put on that? Um, is it the same idea that they hit 10 million and you're like, you know what, you need to get a growth or a high growth board member, not myself, and take that step back? Or are you game to keep going with the business? Um, so the longest I've ever been on a board is about nine years. And I think that is probably about three or four years too long, but the company went through certain challenges that I, I think it made sense for me to, to stick around. Um, others I've transitioned from being a chair to being a board member and there you stayed because there was a, a value in the transition and making sure that, that you know, there's a proper smooth team handover because there's a lot of corporate history that's tied in with being, being on a board. But I think um, five years, three to five years is a good time set. And it's all about, are you adding value? And I, I really don't like um, being part of something where you're not adding value. And I think when you're, when you're, uh, I, I want to hold myself to the same standards that I hold other people who are on boards of companies I've invested in to. So if I see somebody taking, getting paid and I have nothing, there's nothing wrong with getting paid for being on the board. I want to know that they're aligned and they're adding and they're contributing, they're creating value for the, for the management team. I don't like to see that. I, it can't be a one way street. Yeah, no, I, I like that. Very valid and agreed. And this is super helpful for startup CEOs because they probably don't think any of this and you can tell them and you can share them. But when they hear this, I guess on a different context, it starts to trigger and they start to think, man, this person's been on here for three years and haven't, doesn't, hasn't delivered anything. And I think sometimes we forget that they're not there. Sometimes they're there for a picture, but really at the end of the day, you need to utilize them as much as you can because they're helping you build and support your business. So one of the things I'll do, and this is just, everybody's weird. Everybody's a bit weird. Um, and all angel investors have this. Uh, there was this investor I worked with in London called John Perkis. Um, great guy. You can Google him. Uh, he, he's written many books. Um, 
he he had this theory that he won't invest. So people always ask you, what do you what do you invest in? He would not invest in a CEO who does not have siblings. His theory is that if you have siblings, you've learned to negotiate, you've learned to share, you've learned to uh, do all kinds of stuff. So he he has done. He's got that theory now. Um, it was great working with him until we went to China, and then we just couldn't find any deals in China. But um, uh, the, the 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 guy has this weird theory about that, and that's fine. I won't invest in companies where you have a superstar board. So if it's a startup and you've got board members who sit on more than say six or seven boards, I'm not interested in investing because I know that those people cannot possibly possibly devote the time energy to to the company you know i I just need to i'd rather have and i've seen this happen in in sports i've seen this happen in all kinds of arenas i'd rather have someone fully committed who is less talented than someone who is very talented but not committed Mm. Uh, a, a commitment to the cause can compensate for a lack of talent if you're not committed, no amount of talent can compensate for that. So I, I will not, I don't like investing in company. And some companies will say, we've managed to secure this person on our board, we've managed to secure this person. And they think you're going to go, wow. And actually it has the opposite effect on me. I'm like, oh. I, I, do, I can tell you now, they're not going to, so they sit on your board and they sit on a board of a ten of a $100 million company that's paying them $100,000 and you're going to pay them options worth 10000 a year which call are they going to take? Mm. Yeah, which, which, which company minutes are they not going to read until they get to them? I mean, how rude is it when you go to a board meeting and somebody hasn't read the minutes? And you're like, really? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a, sorry, that's a long-winded point. I know that's no, not... No, that's brilliant because what you're, you're talking to experience and that is super valuable because, again, a lot of CEOs and entrepreneurs have never been through this. So they don't always look at all of these other elements. And what I love about what you've gone through and then what you're sharing is that it's detailed and you found what works and you stick to it. It's versus I'm trial and erring right now and I'm erring more than I'm getting out of the value. You've kind of gone through this and I think that that's awesome. So I'm, I'm glad that you're sharing this. This is good. Uh, in your investments, do you take leads? And do, will you lead an investment? Is that something that's an option? No, I, I don't have the time, energy, commitment, uh, attention to detail. Uh, the ability to deal with lawyers, uh, not what I was brought on the earth to do. It's it's not what I want to do. And I, I think it's a very valuable role. I think somebody needs to do it. It's just not me. No, fair enough. Um, inside of this, uh, on the DD side, when you're doing the deep dive, you're going through. So, you know, you started with the company, you like the CEO, you like what they're about. They've got a board that you enjoy, that you've structured nice. It's structured nicely. Uh, you're working it through. Is there, on the paperwork side, are there must-haves, like, in a DD, you need to see these things. And what are they? So I, I won't, uh, very, very rarely will I invest alone. I'll invest with other people. Normally I'm part of a round uh, of people I trust and who are competent, who will do more due diligence than I will. And it also depends on the size of the investment. So for example, if I'm doing, a, my average investment size is about $25,000. If I'm doing a $25,000 investment, I'm not gonna spend, you know, 20, 30 hours on the due diligence because then I, I put a cost to my time. Although the invest, although the company's only received 25,000, I've given them an additional $15,000 of my time. 
you know, so straight away, I'm not going to make money out of that deal because I've now invested 40,000, not 25. So I think you're, the, the due diligence, the level of due diligence I do, and, and this is probably the wrong answer, but the level of due diligence I do reflects the uh, amount of um, money I'm putting in. And Jeffrey, I always find it strange that there are a lot of people I know who will put more due diligence in a $25,000 investment than they will on buying a house. And I'm like, you're going to buy a house. It's probably the biggest financial product you're ever going to buy. And I'm not just talking about due diligence in the house. I'm talking about due diligence because the most expensive thing isn't actually the house. The most expensive thing we've ever bought is the mortgage. Because the house might be 250, but the mortgage is going to be 400 by the time you've done it over, uh, over 25 years. And we'll do due diligence on the house. Is it a pretty house? Is it nice? Is it this? What does it look like? We've done no due diligence on the mortgage. You know, have I shopped around? What, do, what does this term mean? So I will shop around and I will do the due diligence, but it has to be in relation to the scale of the money going in. Because I've got a, I have this time value of money thing that I really, uh, I just have this hierarchy of how I want to spend my time. I was, I, I was influenced by somebody very early on in my career who, who told me that the only thing money can buy you is time. That the difference between rich people and poor people is rich people have more time. The reason why you would travel business class is because you're buying yourself time. Because you can sleep on a plane, that gives you more time. You will stay in a nice hotel because you have a better experience. That better experience gives you more time. Uh, all of these things you pay for is so you have more time. So therefore, don't, don't piss the time away by doing stupid things that actually, you know, you've done what you've done approach each day new each day gives you a new bank balance of 24 hours oh that's great and I, and I like the fact that you really equate that money and time piece because when you when you look at the due diligence that like you said on a smaller investment or a company that maybe is two three million valuation there's not a lot of metrics there there's not a lot of data so you are taking a, a higher risk you're going on a limb so when you're doing that there's other elements that you can look at there is some due diligence the lawyers will take care of all the back paperwork uh, to make sure that that's all taken care of. So I 100% agree with that. But as you start to work your way up, you're going to start to dive into more detail. So, you know, the first home you bought versus the last home you bought, you're going to get into way more detail. You're yes. going to start looking at areas, locations, uh, how the sun hits, how big the front is. Those are all optical things. But on the back end, it comes about the money. It's always about how you make money. And when we make an investment into a company, it's about money. How is that company going to grow? How are they going to hit their numbers? How are they going to hit their targets? What are they looking to? Who's their client? Where's the MVP? There's so many other elements that tie in to make this um, a really investable opportunity. And some of those, a lot of those can come out just through that conversation or through that DD side of things. So uh, I do appreciate that. And you're right, you know, money and time is, uh, um, it's pretty important when you do any of this type of deal. So, and Jeffrey, um... A lot of investing through other people, like be it the supporters fund or be it through other investment groups, the whole thesis is that you're outsourcing the due, the requirement of due diligence. You're outsourcing the, um, you know, the, the detail that people would have to do. Uh, you, you're actually outsourcing that because you do place a value on your time. And I know that if I'm investing through someone else, they're going to do a whole amount of due diligence and all the appropriate paperwork that needs to be done uh, needs to be done yeah I, I completely agree with that and that's why you're paying to get somebody else to do that job and you want to make sure they're doing it right and wholeheartedly agree with that so you, you did mention and touched on a couple pieces of course you mentioned the ceo and making sure that uh this person like in the case of david 
they hit that opportunity, the strength, the values that you're looking for. Is there anything else that you look at from a company perspective during the DD or post DD that you really want to uh, emphasize today that is something that is important? Uh, it's not DD, but it's likability. It's it's and everyone everyone has their own everyone uh, has their own um, um, as I mentioned about the uh, John Pocus not investing in uh, people without siblings. Everyone has their own thing. I I, I just to me likability is a big factor. Do do I like the person? Because um, and and it's about do I think I'd enjoy? And this sounds very strange. And I I don't think a lot of the entrepreneurs will get this. So sometimes I get a lot of emails, as you can imagine, from people who I don't know saying, hey, we're looking to raise money. Would you be interested? And the answer is always no. And uh, and, and the, the reason why it's always no is I, I start off thinking if you invest in something, you've lost the money. It's just a lot easier way to cope with. What is it? There's that great quote, despair I can cope with. It's the hope that kills me. And um, so you write off the investment. So therefore, you've got to ask yourself, are you willing to invest $25,000 on this thing because it's going to be fun, because it's going to be, you know, um, you know, enjoyable? Because if you, if you don't even have um, fun on this, why are you doing it? So I know that's, uh, that's not a, it, it's not a, it's not an answer that helps entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs say, well, how do I make it fun for you? How do I, how do I be like, well, you don't, it's it, either it's going to be something that I want to get involved in or I don't. So I've met lots of people and I spent time with them. And I think, is this a sector that I find interesting? Is this, um, and it doesn't have to be um, a sector you. So we mentioned the example of Kripka, as you can tell, it's not a service I'm going to be using uh, frequently. Um, you know, because it's haircuts and clearly I, I'm, I'm follically challenged. But the, the, the idea is though, will you have fun on this journey? Are you investing with good people? Are you gonna enjoy catching up with them? And if they lose you your money, would you still call them up and say, hey, how are you doing? And if the answer is yes, great, invest in them. If you think you're gonna lose a relationship with somebody, you know, it's probably not worth investing in. No, I, I uh... I love that. That's awesome. You're right. If things go sour, am I going to be pissed off and never reach out to that person again? Or do I like them enough that I would still reach out because I know that we could have a good, deep intellectual conversation about something. And maybe then they started the next company, they would have interest to come back. I, I think that's brilliant because you're right. It, uh, you, you can't live your life being frustrated, annoyed about something you did. So a good way to look at investing is that if I can see them in 10 years from now, or I can see them in two, regardless of the outcome, and they're still going to be happy, and I'm still going to be excited for what they did, then it's worth jumping in and investing. And uh, that carries through very well. So I'm now thinking in my head all the investments we've made, and I'm saying, is there anybody in there? You know what? Uh, I, a company called me today. We had had many discussions, and they were from uh, uh, Panama, and they're doing uh, 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 crypto business. And... There was a company that I had, and it was one of my first uh, crypt, uh, sorry, um, crypto investments that ended up having to fail. They got hit by a million things with, this, with the um, security, securities exchange with SEC, and they ended up just deciding to fold the company. And all I could think of was, I got to call this guy who folded the company, lost the investment, and all I kept thinking was, I got to call him and see what he thinks about this company. So there was no negative, no nothing. It was, they worked their butt off to build this company, and at the end of the day, could I still have that conversation? 
still thought they were smart as hell, fantastic at what they tried to do, but these things happen. So you've got to be able to gauge that and be able to move forward. So I love that advice. That's fantastic. Yeah. And um, I've never been into, let's just make money for the sake of making money. So again, there are certain sectors. Ironically, the investment that I'm, it still hasn't exited, so it could still go horribly wrong. But one of the investments I've enjoyed the most and the business has done, uh, has it is doing very, very well at the moment. So let's hope it goes all the way through an exit. Um, I invested in the CEO three times prior to, and every time it failed. And what was interesting was, uh, again, when you, when you talk to entrepreneurs about, so you talk about due diligence, and one of the due diligence questions I always like asking is, why did you fail in, 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 a, in a business? And what's really interesting is, great entrepreneurs will tell you what they learned. There's reflection, there's genuine humility, there's, you know, we got this wrong, I got this wrong, I should have done this, I should have done that. There's some reflection. What weaker entrepreneurs will do is blame something or someone or a customer or, or something. It's like sales. You know, you talk to salespeople, oh, wow, you, did, you, did, you got a great sales uh, order there. How'd you get it? Oh, I'm brilliant. Uh, why did the customer not buy this time? Oh, the customer's an idiot. You know, it was never them. It was if, if, they were, if they were successful, it was all them. If it went wrong, it was all because of someone else. So what, one of the things I loved about this guy was every time he didn't succeed, the learnings were incredible. And um, what I realized was that I'd invested in his education and I didn't want to be the guy that enabled someone else to benefit from the huge investment I'd made in his education. That's why I continued investing. Whereas other people, a few, that um, they behaved in a way that you didn't expect them to behave, so you'd never invest in them again, ever. No, I love that. Someone told me a story, and I don't remember how long it was, but very similar to that, and it was, uh, they had screwed up on an order and it was pretty bad. So they came into the CEO with the resignation and said, you know, I just lost you uh, $10 million and you know what, I'm not worthy to be here anymore. So I'm resigning. And they said, I'm not accepting this. I just invested $10 million in you. You better get in there and make something happen. Yeah. And you're right. It's, uh, it, it's the exact same mentality. There is that you work with them, you're building, you're building. And then there's going to be this point where they're going to be, They've got it right this time. They're going to write the, find the right formula, and uh, you're paying in that. And we have one company called Scout, and um, he told his story, and he said the same thing. He's like, okay, I failed this company. We did okay in this one and failed it, and you know what? This is how we're doing this one. And we were going through all the stages of what he was doing in his investments, and he's like, I'm only taking this much, no more. And I was like, I love this. And he's like, and then I'm going to take this much and no more. And everybody's like, you need tens and thousands of millions. And he's like, no, I just need this. This is going to get me to here. I've learned this. He goes, I screwed it up so many times. He goes, now I know the right formula that's going to make us driven to get it done. And they've been executing. They've been hitting every single one and moving along. And it's been fantastic. It's great to see. And you know what? It, it was that learning that he had to do to get there. So um, it's appreciated. I, I think that's a, a great way of looking at it. And I love the blame someone else. You know that they're still not matured enough to get through this. They're going to have more learning and the ones that have taken it on. We all, we all make mistakes. And recently I've been organizing these training courses. Uh, and what's interesting is who turns up and who doesn't turn up for these voluntary online training courses. And um, you, you have to stay committed to learning. You have to stay committed to the idea that you can continue to learn. And one, one of the things I really look for is uh, people who are really interested in learning. And I think uh, a, 
as, as we move, somebody made this very interesting point that the slowest period of change you will ever experience in your lifetime is now. It's right now. Here on in, the pace of change is going to go one way and one way only. So every day is the slowest day of change you'll experience. And therefore, the, the whole way we, we think about acquiring skills and deploying skills is becoming increasingly redundant. So therefore, it's, it's people who don't have a particular set of skills, but people who are able to quickly grasp and learn and enjoy the learning new stuff. There are lots of things where a lot of my theses, a lot of my thinking is challenged. You know, when you read Adam Grant, we talked about the book, Adam Grant, the originals. That challenged a lot of my thinking about angel investing. Um, you, 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 re you read other stuff and your, your thinking is constantly being challenged. And I like that. And I find that a lot of people, they reach a stage where they think they're successful or whatever. And I think that's it, I'm done. I, I, there's nothing more the world can teach me. That's the moment you're done. That's the moment you're done. Agreed. And uh, he does have a great book. And, and I think uh, a good story to line that up to, to your point was um, when I started uh, converting and renovating homes from single to duplex, the first home took me a year and a half on weekends. The second home took me a year. The third, you know, the third home is, and why? Because you keep changing your format, kept the same template, but you kept learning ways to be more efficient. And you kept reading more things and figuring out how to tie things in. So your learning ability sped up and then you started to see problems before the problems came. You started right. to engage things quicker than they would happen. Absolutely. You were able to juggle more things than before they happened. So I think it kind of fits in that same context, right? As, as you're learning as an entrepreneur or an investor, the more information that you take in, what you did the first time is going to be way different than the last time. And uh, it actually comes to a question that I'm curious on is that in your investment um, uh, portfolio side of things, do you look at terms? Like, do you want to do it as a safe? Uh, do you like it as convertible? Like, do you have a certain criteria that you look for in investment yeah. that's better suited for you? Yeah. So, Jeffrey, you asked me how I like to invest, are there particular types of terms I like to invest in, et cetera. And I think, um, again, that is an evolving thing. So originally uh, in the UK, I started off angel investing in the UK, and I had to invest in a certain way to get to benefit from the equity tax credit. So doing convertible loan notes, et cetera, didn't work. I'm increasingly investing through safe notes. Uh, because there's a best practice. I, I think a lot of investors, and these are the amateur investors who haven't, you know, and I always hate investing alongside people who've been doing their first ever investment because they all want to do a Gordon Greco impression and do the whole, you know, we've got to beat the entrepreneur. It's just like that. What you find is there's actually more money than there are good deals. And as, as an investor, you want the good deals to allow you to invest in them which might sound a very weird thing to say. I am very lucky that I get to invest in certain companies. I am. And again, a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this might find that's a very weird way of thinking about this. But um, good companies get chased. And, and, and one of the things you have to do as, so what differentiates me? One of the things you have to do is you have to have a good backstory which says that you are a good investor, you're an investor with integrity, that you have connections that can help the company, there are things you can do passively to really help the company and that you are a good investor. One of the things you can do is offer terms which are friendly to the, to the entrepreneur. 
one of the things I, you've got to think about this is this is a war where you are working together over the long term. This isn't a battle. Because I think a lot of people, if an investor approaches it as a battle that they've got to win, they'll win the battle, Jeffrey, but they'll end up losing the war. And what I mean by that is if they have very onerous terms, if they really screw the, uh, the entrepreneur in, in terms of their investment deal, great, you've won the battle, but then don't be surprised that the entrepreneurs are doing everything they can to you know, not deliver the best they can for you. They will use legal arguments to do all kinds of things. So um, it, it, it works both ways. And I think um, being very clever sometimes works out to be a very stupid thing to do. So um, in answer to your question, I tend to go for um, entrepreneur-friendly documents. Um, normally do a safe. Safe has now, I think, become established as best practice. There are a few issues with it, I know, and it we revised. And again, if there's innovation going on, and we, we do safe, and then we find problems, and, and normally Silicon Valley finds those problems first, because it's where it, well, I think it was textiles in Boulder that originally started doing uh, um, safe notes. So then they've identified some problems, so they adapt, they adapt. So we continue to learn. So what does the investment vehicle, what does the investment note look like five years from now? I don't know. It'll probably look very different from what it looks now. Providing it's tax friendly and entrepreneur friendly, that, that's, that's what, we, what you should go for. I like that. And, and you're right. It's got to be entrepreneur friendly because as they grow their business, the last thing you want to do is find out you own three quarters of it. No other investors want to come in. They have no desire to build it and uh, they fall apart and you're stuck with a business or no one is. So, uh, being friendly as possible is, is certainly uh, certainly helpful and everybody's got their likes and dislikes but I think if you make it uh, valuable enough for the entrepreneur everybody wins and uh, you move it forward that way and we look at different things from putting in warrants so that you don't have to do another raise in eight months there'll be a few dollars that might come in so that's one option uh, there's other things that you can look at that um, can help you benefit on both sides but sometimes a cap on a safe works just as well as doing a convertible note. And as long as, if it's really early, early, then a safe is perfect. It doesn't need a cap. It's so early, you've got a long runway and a lot to build. It's the next investment where you can come yeah. back in and put some more value. So it, there's a purpose for everything. So I, I love that, that's, that's awesome. Um, is there uh, anything that, I guess based on the current environment that we're in, is there anything that you look at and say, yeah, I've seen some pullback or I'm not really driving as many investments or is right now just as uh, flavorful in the investment community as it always has been? I, I think it depends enormously on uh, what, what sector you're in. Uh, clearly, if you're in the leisure travel industry, you're kind of, you know, you've been hit hard. Um, my fear was again, Crib cut would be hit hard, but again, I think the CEO had some very, very good uh, plans and resiliency uh, built built in. Um, but I think um, the reality is, if you look at bank deposits in the US and the UK where data is available, I'm not seeing the Canadian data. Um, people are sitting on bigger cash balances than they've ever sat on before. There are negative yields being offered in the UK and in in, in Germany and a lot of the world. So you, you buy government bonds, you have a negative rate of interest on government treasuries. So, and the stock markets are, are at a record high, which nobody understands why. It seems to be defying common sense. So I think if I look at the fundamentals and I look at the bank balances, the cash balances that people are sat on, 
I think now's a very good time to be angel investing. I, I, I really do. I really do. You've got a tax regime, which is going to be very friendly to you. I think we're going to have huge tax bills to pay for what governments globally have been doing. So if you can get a tax benefit now that can be used in the future years, that, that's going to have a bigger benefit uh, for you. So I think now is good a time as any. I really do. I really do. I, I just feel um, companies that haven't adapted, um, they're going to struggle. And I had a, I had a, a, a person organize a, a talk. I, I organized a talk last Friday. It was Alistair Campbell, who, who used to be Tony Blair's right-hand man. And he was talking about strategy, objectives, and all this stuff. And he said a lot of, a lot of companies that had bad, had bad strategies going into COVID-19. And all that COVID-19 has done is accelerated a bad strategy. Whereas some companies clearly have had to adapt, of course. But a lot of companies haven't adapted. They've just literally accelerated or um, taken advantage of it. They've seen this as, a, as, right, this is the bad thing. This is the good things. How do I adapt quickly? There's a company I invested in in, in Canada, which does a food um, delivery uh, service. Not actually doing the last mile, but doing the merchant, the, trans, uh, the transaction. They've been doing very, very well because they are, they cost about 4% of the transaction, not 25, 30% like other companies do. So even in that, there was huge opportunities for them. So I think there are always, always, always opportunities available. You've got to look at, and again, this comes down to the entrepreneur. Have you invested in someone who can take advantage of changing circumstances? It's the adaptability. Oh, I like that. And you're right. It's the, the shifting and, and adapting to the environment, but being able to foresee it as well is going to be helpful so that when it does come, you're ready to act on it or you've already made the shift into the right positioning. Um, you mentioned vertical side. Is there verticals that you prefer to invest in uh, or verticals that you think are ones you're looking to add into your portfolio going, portfolio going forward? It, it depends on, I mean, I don't like investing in things that require large capital I, 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 because it's just not, you know, given the size of my investments, it, it, I'll get watered down so much. It beca- it, it's almost painful for the company to actually have you as an investor because, you know, having 3,000 shareholders before you've got an exit is just not, not appropriate. So I tend to stay away from verticals that require large amounts of capital. So although I'm in Atlantic Canada, which is very big in oceans, uh, and we've got lots of economic activity around oceans, I, I've stayed away from investing in that sector just because of the, uh, the way they deploy capital. Um, so I think the, the verticals I remain on are very heavily technology focused or technology solutions to existing problems. Um, but that's more to do with capital rather than I like this vertical, I don't like that vertical. We all have our things that we wouldn't invest in. I, I wouldn't invest in any of the sin things just because I, I, I just don't want to. Um, I'm not making any aspersions on what people should do with their, with their money. It's just not what I want to do. Um, but other than that, I'm very, very agnostic. I don't know enough about industries to say, I invest in this vertical, this vertical, this vertical. Okay, no, fair enough. And that's, that's good insights as well. Um, people always are curious as to if there's a vertical, but when you're a generalist and you just look at best fits and best markets, and as a heavy reader, as you mentioned, those things are valuable because you're always researching and learning things. So yeah. you're going to see a new space and, and take that risk. So that's amazing. Um, 
So we're kind of getting near to some of the last kind of few questions that we have. And before I ask you the, the, the last two questions, we've kind of gone through this journey, right? You, you start looking at deal flow, you figure out why you're in here and, and what type of things you like best about it, what things are good about the DD, um, and then why you're making that investment and going forward. Um, so you kind of got the verticals, you've got this figured out. There's one kind of highlight question that really kind of takes all of this into context is all of the learnings that you've got from all of the investments you've made. Is there one or two things that really stand out in your mind? And you've mentioned a bunch of things throughout um, our discussion. Is there something that you would give as a story of a really cool thing that's occurred in one of the startups that you've invested in? You know, they had a tough go. You talked about one where they failed a couple times and now they've got something that's really working. Is there a really good story that sticks out in your mind that, um, kind of gives that context of what it really is about investing and what makes that entrepreneur really unique and exciting. There was an entrepreneur I invested in and uh, the business failed. And then they reached, they, they, the entrepreneur and few of the people, not the entire management team, a few of them started another startup. And because they had this idea about this new startup, whilst they were working for this business that failed, they re they, they started the game and they gave shares in the new business to the investors in the old company because they thought that was the honorable thing to do. And that company is actually doing very well. And I just thought what I loved about that was it, it proved that I was right to invest in them because of the integrity they demonstrated. Now, I'm not saying that companies need to do that, or indeed there is an expectation that they would do that. But you now know that if that company ever fell on hard times again, they would have a whole, a whole raft of investors supporting them. Um, I just love it when you have stories of integrity. There are stories I know of businesses that, have, that the entrepreneur saw that the business was failing, and then they actually closed the business before they had to, so they could return some money to shareholders because they, and that, that, that I've seen happen. Um, and those kinds of things make you realize that you'd invest in these people again and again and again, because fundamentally they get that you are risking your money for them and they don't have this entitlement attitude. There are some horrific stories I had uh, where I invested in the Silicon Valley uh, startup and I can tell you the, the entrepreneurs treated the investors terribly, like terribly, the arrogance was unbelievable. So I now only invest in people that I know very, very well. I don't, I, that was just a, I, I wanted it on my resume that I'd invest in the Silicon Valley startup. I don't want that anymore. I, I want to invest in good companies wherever they are. Oh, that's awesome. And that's, that's actually a really good story. Uh, I, I like that where the, where the startup realized that there is, uh, more to just the investment and just to the company it was about the people too. So just like you were investing in the people, they were investing in the people. So yeah. they went and brought that back in. And you're right, that opens up the market hugely because when they're starting to grow, they can go and say, hey, you've got shares. I'm glad I brought you back. And you're going to be like, hey, I want to invest in this too. So oh, yeah. you're going to reinvest and because you love what they did. And every investor, every single person that had granted shares to ended up investing in the company as well. Every single one of them. Oh, that's brilliant, man. That's an awesome story. Well, I'm glad that you, that you were able to share that. Um, so now we're gonna kind of go into this 
the, the last couple questions. So is there, um, in your crystal ball, is there what you can see happening in the next 12 months versus the next three years? Is there something you can envision uh, that the entrepreneurs could be looking at? It could be a vertical, it could be a startup that they should look at, anything you want, but just share a little bit about what you're seeing in the next three to 36 months. Yeah. Jeffrey, I wish I could say something intelligent, and I, I just can't. I, th I think I love that quote. It's very difficult making predictions, especially about the future. And uh, I, just, I just think it's, it's I, I genuinely don't know. I think one thing we do know is that uh, supply chains are going to become less efficient. We're going to have um, uh, huge knocks to our um, GDP globally. England is expected to decline by 12%. Canada by about 7.5%, These are huge knocks in GDP, huge. And we're going to be saddled with huge, huge debts. So then you're going to have a huge amount of debt over a smaller GDP. So we are going to be in for a very rough period. I think we are going to remain in extraordinarily low interest rate environment. So I think from an economic point of view, it looks like it's going to be bleak. But if you have a job and if you have debt, you're going to do well. Now is a good time to have debt. Now is not a good time to be relying on a fixed income. Um, now is a good, because of the, what's going to happen with interest rates, now is a very good time to have debt. Um, and, and I went into the 2007 financial crisis with a huge amount of debt. And actually, uh, it was the crisis that, say, I mean, it was horrific for a lot of people, but it, it personally, for me, it was very good because the interest rate on my debt went from 7% to 1.5%. And on a lot of debt, that is a huge saving. So I think uh, all, all you can look at is what are the circumstances, what do people's budgets look like? Uh, I think this social distancing thing is going to be permanent. Uh, uh, or, or it will fundamentally alter the way we behave. I think Starbucks today announced that they're closing 20% of their 200 stores in Canada and 20% of their stores across North America. Uh, and they think they're going to... That is a big reversal for something like Starbucks. That's a big reversal. And yep. uh, a lot of landlords would have been over the moon that they've signed uh, Starbucks. Now they're all nervous. Uh, I think we'll have more liquidity events where companies have to exit leases and arrangements and the only way they can do that is through uh, bankruptcy and all restructuring so i think there's going to be a lot of um, opportunities the opportunities for startups uh, i think will be in the recovery phase in the companies with strong balance sheets will do well i think lots and lots of companies will look for how do i reduce my uh, um, how do i reduce my fixed costs and there'll be huge opportunities for companies that can somehow help big corporates reduce their fixed costs. Now that's good. And you're right. The, we can't look at, you can't look at this as this micro uh, ecosystem. You have to look in this, in the bigger picture of it. And what are all the other countries doing? Our big business is treating this. Um, and with, uh, like you said, with um, uh, even the biggest coffee Starbucks changing their platform and reducing their footprint. And they're the ones that were building up all of these other spaces. If they're taking a step back, 
you know, they see the impact that's happening and they see that the recovery is going to be a lot longer, which means that the markets are going to start to see this because you're going to start to see some more fallout. And when that happens, you really have to look at the focus of your startup. This isn't going to be like 2007 where you had a one or two years of uh, slowness. And that's where I started my first uh, one of my companies um, at that time because I could fill a gap, fill a fix. And um, it was on the software side, but now you're going to see that this is even crazier. So, uh, but we're not looking at everybody's maybe too optimistic and too positive. They're not really focused on what's this going to look like down the road. But now that Starbucks and everybody are chipping away at the problem, you're going to see that people have to really try to focus their startup and say, okay, how can I make small incremental wins here? How can I be competitive? Uh, because even big business, I've been wanting to post this on LinkedIn for a while now is, does this mean that the world's going to be competitive again? Because for the last five, 10 years, nobody's competitive. They're just like, I charge $200 for this cup of coffee, accepted. What? Why? Why isn't there any competition? So now it seems like people are going to have to compete because they're realizing that they're not getting the traction they were getting in some instances. Yeah, but Jeffrey, I think one of the things that's going to be interesting about this recovery is it's really going to hurt young people. So if you have, if you are over the age of 40 and you've made it to middle management or above, you're still getting paid. You have got your debt. You've got your, you're at peak mortgage time. You're at peak debt time in your life. Things are really, really good. Whereas if you're very young and you have job uncertainty because of the gig, you can't actually borrow money even if you wanted to. So I, I think we're going to see an increasing generational divide. And I think, we're going to end up having, we'll have to have generational based taxes mm. because I think, um, so I'm, I'm looking at more from an economic point of view, but then what does that mean in terms of what young people do? I think the move towards the sharing economy is going to accelerate because young people will, will give up on the idea of accumulating assets because they'll, they'll be outside of their reach. So they'll enjoy more and more of experience based products. So if you can deliver experiences like I think Airbnb are going to come back strong. I really do. I, I, I think staycations are going to become very strong. And I think people exploring their own neighborhoods, et cetera. So I think there's lots of new opportunities at a micro level that will be unleashed that I think will do very, very well. So it'd be interesting to see what happens. It'd be very interesting. Yeah, I love it. And that's a, that's a pretty good prediction. I think there's a lot of things we can noodle around there. So we'll have to uh, reconnect in a couple of years on this uh, interview <laughs> side and come back and look at the, uh, the crystal ball and see how we fared out. But um, I do want to. I do want to thank you very much, Fernjit, for providing this insight. My pleasure. It was brilliant. I took lots of notes, which I always got to show everybody. So, uh, but I'm a big fan, and uh, I'm sure we're going to chat uh, after this, 100%. But uh, I thank David for uh, for sharing and joining us, and everybody else. But uh, I want to say um, thank you very much. Keep interesting, keep sharing, and. Uh, uh, be well, and we will uh, we'll connect soon. But thank you very much thank again. Thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Thank you.